What to Know podcast explores best practices, innovation, and latest trends with industry experts with an eye toward helping you, the listener, stay ahead of the ever-changing marketing and communications landscape. Good afternoon. This is Aaron Strout, CMO of W2O and the host of the What to Know podcast show. We are here live at the Boston Convention Center. Uh, at the Bio Conference, and I have the pleasure today of sitting down with Rajiv Venkaya, who is the president of Takeda's Vaccine Group. Fascinating guy. He was supposed to actually come and speak at our South by Southwest events. Weather prevented it, so I am really excited to be able to sit down now and uh, have a chat with you. So welcome, Rajiv. Great to see you, Aaron. Thanks for having me. Great to see you, too. Um, and as a fellow Bostonian, uh, I always you know, appreciate that piece. I do want to talk a little bit about um, your background, and then we'll get into you know some of your thoughts on the industry. Lots of fascinating things going on, and then some of the fun personal questions I like to ask all the guests. Uh, but you have an impressive background. Many of our guests do, but um, you've spent some time in the White House, uh, most recently with the Gates Foundation, I believe, before joining Takeda. Uh, talk a little bit about that background and what that journey's looked like. Sure, be happy to. And 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 again, thanks for the opportunity to to speak with you. So I actually didn't start out in public. I started out in clinical medicine and uh, trained in internal medicine and uh, did my specialty training in pulmonary and critical care medicine, which uh, really involves intensive care unit medicine as well as uh, lung disease. And in the midst of my uh, my training at um, San, Fr- San Francisco, I, I realized that while I really enjoyed and appreciated the impact I could have on a patient-by-patient basis that I wanted to have an impact at scale. And there are a few ways that that you can do that. Uh, One of them is through affecting policy, national policy or global policies. And that led me to apply for a program called the White House Fellows Program in Washington, which is a one-year experience in a department or agency working closely with a leader that gives you insight into what it takes to make good policy, leadership skills, and, um, and other um, things related to service. During my time in DC, I had a chance to work with and then was hired by the White House to work in biodefense. And here uh, was my first in-depth engagement in the public health arena because when the government was thinking about biodefense after the anthrax attacks of 2001, Uh, it was very clear that not only did we need to have uh, systems in place to pick up outbreaks of uh, infectious diseases early, but that we also needed uh, ways to respond very quickly, and in the case of something like an anthrax outbreak, to get medicines to people as quickly as possible, because as you and your listeners may or may not know, if you don't start treating anthrax within the first 24 to 48 hours after exposure, uh, the lethality is, is quite high. And so this gave me uh, insight into the role that public health can play, not only to address deliberate threats, but also the necessity of having a well-functioning public health system in the background addressing day-to-day threats so that when an emergency like that comes up that you're prepared to respond. It was also my first real exposure to vaccines because pandemic influenza became a real concern in the 2005-06 time frame and the U.S. government realized that we're not prepared. And you're, you're hearing this theme again today as we look at other outbreaks of emerging infectious diseases where people are concerned that we're not going to have enough vaccines soon enough to protect the population. And so I had a, an opportunity to help develop policies that would guide the U.S. government's preparedness and response activities. 
Um, from the White House, I, I went to the Gates Foundation because I wanted to continue along this theme of having impact at scale. And my experiences there centered around vaccines. I ran the vaccine delivery team. And the goal there was to take vaccines that had been shown to be safe and effective and use broadly in developed countries and make them available to children in, in developing countries. In fact, those are the kids who need these vaccines the most. And so we spent a lot of our time thinking about how to reach the difficult to reach kids and overcome all the barriers that could prevent vaccines uh, from making it to those populations. So those were, uh, those were some pivotal experiences um, that I had in vaccines and in public health. And from there, it was really a natural extension to go from affecting policies and global health programs to actually helping to develop products that could, could have uh, that impact on, a, on an individual by individual basis. So in this next question, something you said made me want to ask you a question, and you can divert if you want to, but um, you have spent a tremendous amount of time in this space, and you've had the benefit of working for really the highest possible government organization you could, one of the most well-known charitable organizations, and now one of the biggest, uh, largest you know, pharmaceutical companies in the world. Um, but I want to talk about the role of data because the question I wanted to ask was, you know, where do you see the, the field of public health going in the next 10, 20, 50 years? So you can answer that. But I'd also like to know with so much data out there, and this speaks to your point about the U.S. not necessarily being prepared and having to take all these actions. We have such a plethora of data. I think one of the difficulties is translating. And someone like you who has this rare experience to be able to harness this what role does that play in terms of how you're envisioning the future? And if, like I said, you want to punt on that question because I didn't have that officially, um, feel free to do that. Well, you started out saying you spent a tremendous amount of time, and I thought you were going to say you spent a tremendous amount of time answering that first question. Um, well, I spent uh, a tremendous amount of time asking the second question. No, 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 touche. So uh, on, the, uh, on the issue of data, um, uh, look, we are we're swimming in data. And uh, now that we have... Uh, distributed sensors and distributed input devices vis-a-vis -vis our mobile phones, uh, we have the opportunity to collect massive amounts of data on an ongoing basis. I mean, it, this creates uh, huge opportunities, but there are big inherent challenges whenever you have so much data, and that is getting through, cutting through the noise to find the signal. And uh, to give you an example, uh, there are a lot of people that are looking at ways to detect outbreaks of infectious disease early. In fact, Google tried to do this with something called Google Flu Trends, where they were looking at search terms and queries that were made by people around the globe. And when they saw a spike in certain terms, that um, they, they felt could be a, a harbinger of something to come. And the reality is that it, it probably could be. But addressing the signal-to-noise problem is really challenging because if you take an outbreak, for example, and you rewound the, rewind the tape, you can almost, almost always find uh, uh, signals that, that came up early that preceded the outbreak itself. And so for that outbreak, yes, there might be something you could have identified uh, that, that, that in retrospect um, were harbingers of what was to come. But if you look around the world every day, you find those types of signals everywhere. And the hard part is defining which of those signals are actually going to, uh, to become something, something real. And so I think that whenever we think about um, big data as it relates to healthcare, this is one of the, the significant challenges that we have is how to um, develop tools to be able to effectively analyze that data. Now, I think that 
machine learning and eventually artificial intelligence will play an important role. Right now, there is a lot of hype around these terms, and I think many people throw them around without really understanding um, what, what they mean or using the same definition, at least. Um, but I do think over time, we will get much more sophisticated at identifying patterns and determining which patterns are actually important and then taking action. I also think that um, the opportunity that, that big data provides a huge opportunity in personalized medicine because as we uh, learn more and more about patterns, that uh, patterns of disease as they relate to, say, a person's genetic makeup, that will help us to understand biology better. As we understand biology better, we will understand that there are targeted ways to address uh, problems that we didn't realize in the past. A good example is oncology, immunotherapy. Um, we are now moving into an arena where we're going to be able to really target the type of cancer that an individual has and, and be effective in, in treating them. I think that uh, we, we have benefited tremendously from some very low-cost, highly effective interventions in, in, in public health. And here I would point to clean water, vitamin A, breastfeeding, uh, and of course vaccines. You know, when I think about the emerging body of evidence around the role of diet in disease, uh, and specifically the evolution in thinking about the role of, say, sugar, uh, and what we now appreciate is a connection between sugar and the development of a number of non-communicable diseases, to me, um, the opportunity here to have a long-term impact on a person's health by intervening early in life in helping to shape dietary preferences could have a huge impact. I was in Ethiopia um, a couple of months ago at the first board meeting of CEPI, and I had a chance to talk to one of the state ministers of health, and I asked him how much and by the way, this is not going to be a fast food bashing session. Or We can acknowledge that they're not necessarily adding a ton of positive to they're, society. They're not really helping us on the public health side. So I had a conversation with him and asked him about the penetration of, of um, soft drinks and fast food in Ethiopia. And it turns out that Ethiopia has actually kept those industries out. And Ethiopia also doesn't have a big burden of non-communicable diseases. Whereas if you look at other countries, uh, middle-income countries, that have seen these industries come in, they've seen a, an iceberg of non-communicable diseases like heart disease and diabetes that are now really putting pressure on the health system. So wouldn't it be great if a country like Ethiopia could sidestep that entire iceberg by not allowing the dietary habits that would drive those non-communicable diseases to, to develop? I mean, to me, this is the kind of thing that uh, I think uh, exciting thing that we can look forward to um, in public health. So that's just one, one small example. Well, I like that. So first of all, thank you for indulging me in that data um, answer. That was great. And um, it was interesting as you were answering that uh, second part of the question that four of the five things you mentioned, so if I get this right, clean water, vitamin A, breastfeeding, and you know nutrition, none of which are really drug-related, uh, those are four of the things that you cited as important things for us to change. And then obviously vac va vaccines do play a key role. Um, speaking of that, icebergs and vaccines and bringing us back to the questioning, um, what threats do we have to global health that maybe we aren't seeing right now? And I know you touched on it a little bit in the first question, but as someone that has to really have a wide view of what's coming, how are you prepared as a company? How are we prepared as a society? Talk a little bit about that piece. Well, let me come back to something that's close to home, and that's infectious diseases. Um, we have seen an accelerated 
uh, rate of development of novel emerging infectious diseases that re- that threaten the health of populations and our ability to protect those populations with things like vaccines. Just to give you a few examples beyond pandemic flu, which is an ever-present threat, things like Middle East respiratory syndrome or uh, severe acute um, respiratory syndrome, SARS, Nipah virus, Lassa virus, Ebola, Zika. These are all um, infections that, I've, that have been issues in, in just the past 10, 10 years. And the rate of emergence of these diseases seems to be accelerating. And one of the reasons for that, uh, many people believe, is the uh, increasing animal-human interface so more and more contact between animals and humans, and we know that the animal kingdom is a huge reservoir for these kinds of diseases. Another is likely to be climate change. We're seeing an expansion of the footprint of the vectors like mosquitoes that transmit some of these infectious uh, agents. And so I th- the problem that we're seeing now that I just described is, I think, only going to get worse. And the challenge for, uh, for, for global health is how do you keep up with this? The old model of developing a drug or a vaccine for every single infectious agent is is potentially going to fall apart because we may not be able to keep up. And so what we need are platforms and approaches that allow us to go very quickly from the identification of an infectious agent to a safe and effective, ideally, vaccine. And we're starting to see these platforms develop. I, just by way of example, there are now nucleic acid-based vaccines that are being evaluated RNA vaccines, DNA vaccines, where you can uh, develop a uh, manufacturing process and a manufacturing facility that allows you to produce a large volume of, of material in a short period of time. And then you work out all the details so that the only thing you need to know is the sequence of the protein that you want to inject into a, a, a person. And you just plug in that sequence and boom, you're off to the races. And within weeks, you could have large volumes of vaccines that you could then put into people. So this is still experimental at this stage, but there are a number of companies working on this. And I think that this, uh, this provides a ray of hope um, to address some of these novel threats. Um, there is a, so Mother Nature, I think, is the toughest engineer when it comes to these novel threats. We also have to realize that human beings can be a real problem in this, in this arena. And given where biotechnology is, the reality is that a graduate student with modest capabilities working out of a small laboratory or in their garage uh, in the future will be able to engineer threats that can circumvent the vaccines, drugs, and diagnostics that we have. And the, the same platforms that I mentioned will also be important for addressing those deliberate threats. Well, that's heady stuff and uh, fascinating, particularly about what I'll call the analog to this agile development process in the tech world. And so it's it's nice to hear, comfort, comforting to hear, especially as you tell us about graduate students having that potential. Um, the last question I want to ask before we get into some more personal stuff uh, is vaccines did have a pivotal role in public health in the 20th century. Um and you've talk, talk to, talked about some of this and actually provided some of the context, but what else are we missing that, you know, is going to happen in the 21st century to have as dramatic an impact? You know, this rapid development of, I think, is clearly one of the things, data is another, anything else that we've missed? So the things that I just mentioned, I, I would put into the high-tech category. These are um, approaches that we'll have to tackle tough infectious diseases that we um, either haven't discovered yet or where we've tried to develop vaccines in the past and failed. Uh, there are some tough targets that um, 
that are challenging us every day, like respiratory syncytial virus in young children or cytomegalovirus in transplant uh, recipients or herpes simplex virus, which, um, which uh, infects a lot of people. Um, and, you know, despite a, a lot of effort, we still don't have vaccines for those things. Antimicrobial resistance. You know, we have an emerging number of bacteria for which our antibiotics don't work. And uh, imagine a situation where you cut yourself and go to the ER and come home uh, with an infection that doesn't respond to any antibiotics that potentially could lead to the loss of a limb. This is something that is happening today. And I, th I really think that this problem is only, to get, only going to get worse. And one of the tools that we could develop to tackle this will be vaccines against those bacteria that are becoming resistant to the antibiotics so that your body is armed to prevent you from getting the infection, the bacterial infection to begin with. So I think that that's, these are all, I think, all very important areas of uh, future research and opportunity. The other, uh, the other, I think, a very important element of um, the, the, the next century in public health is very low-tech, and that is to ensure that the great vaccines that we have and the ones that we will develop reach all people who need them. There is no reason for the zip code of your residence to determine whether or not you get access to a preventive intervention like vaccine, like a vaccine. And in fact, the people who live in places that do not have well-functioning health systems and immunization systems are ironically the ones who need these technologies the most. Because if they do find themselves in the unfortunate situation where they get pneumonia or they get another infection but don't have a health system to fall back on, uh, that's where prevention can make a huge difference. Prevention can be life-saving in that situation. So to give you a concrete example, if a young child in the U.S. develops diarrhea from rotavirus, they almost certainly are going to have a full recovery. Whereas if that uh, same infection occurs in a child in a developing country where there isn't access to clinics and hospitals and trained health workers, that child could die. And in fact, each year prior to the introduction of the rotavirus vaccine in developing countries, about 450,000 children died of rotavirus infection every year. And so uh, I think that is, the, that is a goal that we must never forget, not just in vaccines, but in all of, of the industry, that if we're making products and only reaching a portion of the population, then we're not doing our job and we're failing uh, in our efforts to um, to really, to really help people. I don't think you can say uh, credibly that you're doing as much as you could from an impact standpoint unless you have a plan to get your products to all people who need them. So I'm guessing that Takeda is, you know, tackling this hard, especially given your background. What are things that folks like myself could do other than paying attention to policy, voting, you know, electing the right officials? That obviously helps here. That probably doesn't help as much internationally. So, you know, maybe some simple steps or not so simple steps uh, ordinary folks can take to try to help out this problem. Well, that's a great that's a great question. I'm so glad you asked it. There, there are lots of organizations that people can contribute to out of their pocket or even get involved with that are working to uh, deliver health care services to people that need them. It doesn't have to be in far-off lands. There are plenty of people here in, right here in the U.S. that are not getting access to, to good health care. And so you can do this at home. When it comes to going to, to, to the voting booth, I mean, and I'm going to 
be apolitical here, and I'm just going to talk about concepts. You know, we in this country, in the U.S., um, we're fortunate to have, are, are fortunate to find ourselves in a place that has tremendous resources. And, you know, we used to have a saying at the Gates Foundation, to whom much has been given, much is expected. And I think that uh, from a policy standpoint, the U.S. government needs to continue to see, uh, to, to take on the responsibility of supporting parts of the world that don't have the riches that we have, the benefits that we have. There's this great saying that I heard once. Um, I can't remember who said it, but uh, a person that said this said, that guy was born on third base and thinks he had a, he was born on third base and thought he had a triple. So what does that mean? It means that um, that somebody landed on third base, baseball metaphor, and they thought they did something to deserve that. Well, you know, a lot of us, you know, myself included, I'm the son of immigrant parents, but I was born in this country. Uh, my parents did a lot of work to get me here, but I didn't do any work to be born here. I just kind of got to show up. And I got everything that comes along with being born in this this amazing country. And I think that for all of us, we uh, need to recognize that that situation easily could have been different. And mothers in uh, countries far away love their kids just as much as mothers in the U.S. do. And the value of a child's life far away is the same as the value of a child's life here. And I, I firmly believe that it's our responsibility to, to take that on. And so coming back to the point I was trying to make, when it comes to U.S. policy, I think we, we need to support, uh, we need to put decision makers in place that understand this, that recognize that we have a great legacy as a country of helping others, supporting them, uh, and preserve and build upon that in the future. Well, amen. Um, that That's a great uh, message to send to the public. So thank you for sharing that. Uh, we'll get a little less serious now, which is the, you know, a little bit more about you. Um, and I always love to hear these, you know, the answers, particularly the first and third one. But uh, maybe you don't mind sharing something about yourself that people don't know that you are willing to put out there into the uh, podcast sphere. Sure, I'd be I'd be happy to. You know, I'm a um, <clears throat> I'm a, a bit of a geek at heart, and I'm kind of a science fiction buff. But a lot of this goes back to my um, my childhood. My father was uh, an aerospace engineer, spent 32 years working uh, uh, for the Air Force uh, as a civilian scientist. Um, and, uh, and so I grew up wanting to be an astronaut. Um, I loved astronomy. And in fact, I actually was on the astronomy staff at, uh, the Museum of Natural History in Dayton, Ohio, where I gave, um, public planetarium shows for 45 minutes to people about the night sky and the origin of the universe and, um, you know, all the, all the stuff that goes along with that. So, so I'm an astronomy and science fiction buff at heart. Well, that makes me appreciate you even that much more because I love that stuff too. I never took it that far, but I remember going to the Boston Museum of Science yeah. or the planetarium, yeah, at the Museum of Science, um, and I always wondered, you know, where did those people come from that had all this the knowledge? disembodied voice? Exactly, <laughs> exactly. Um, the next one is just to help our readers build their library, and I like to find out from smart people, you know, what motivates you. So, uh, any books that you've listened to or read over the last year or two that you'd care to share with the audience? Sure, yeah, I'll just mention two. Uh, you know, one of them um, came through a recommendation that Bill Gates made, uh, and and Bill is a huge reader, and uh, he he uh, mentioned that this book got him reinterested in science fiction, and it was uh, it's a book called Seven Evis. 
spelled S-E-V-E-N-E-V-E-S. And it's a um, it's an amazing uh, novel about uh, the end of the earth, basically, and uh, what humanity does to uh, when when faced with this apocalyptic situation and how they endure. Uh, and I won't give away the story, but it's it's a, it's what many people would call a space opera, and I think it's a great read. Um, the other one that I, I read uh, is by a guy named Gary Taubes, T-A-U-B-E-S. It's called The Case Against Sugar. So I talked about sugar a little bit earlier. Um, but uh, I, uh, Taubes goes through and, and uh, explains the history behind... Um, the emergence of sugar as a major part of the diet in Western countries, particularly in the U.S., and importantly, the role of industry in making that happen. And I think this has, you know, it's, it's important for people in the pharmaceutical industry to look at how other industries have conducted themselves, um, and then spends a lot of time exploring um, what is increasingly supported by the science, the linkage between sugar intake and a number of health conditions, and uh, for me, provides a, a bit of a roadmap for how many countries could tackle the substantial burden of non-communicable diseases. Well, it sounds like two great ones, and uh, it's interesting. The first one, um, seven Nevis. Seven Nevis. Seven Nevis. Uh, we have this spate of post-apocalyptic, you know, shows yes. like Walking Dead, and yeah, I've been dystopian watching dystopian stuff. Yeah, dystopian. Yeah. It's yeah. fascinating. I think we have this. You, you probably play closer to that than others with the your role in vaccines um but it's interesting our fascination with this uh the last one is uh, one of my favorites and i'm interested because you said that you've got a good answer for this um imagine you're stranded on a deserted island and can only take one album with you which album would it be and why you know it's really hard to think of an album that you like but that you could like listening to over and over and over and over again and i'm assuming i'm stranded for more than one weekend Right. Yes. This is like definitely perpetuity. This is, so. Oh, okay. So this is uh, yeah. So, so I actually uh, th- so there's a group that I I, uh, I will be surprised if many of your listeners know about this group. It's a group called Hooverphonic, um, and they were big in the um, they got big in the mid '90s, um, but they still are releasing stuff. Uh, it's spelled H O O V E R Hoover, like uh, and then phonic, and it's one word. And they have uh, a great album called A New Stereophonic Sound Spectacular that I have listened to many, many, many times, probably as many times as I would if I were deserted on an island, and I still like it. And um, I like it because, uh, well, I'm not going to tell you why I like it. I'm going to force your listeners to check it out for themselves. So Hoover Phonic, when you see you're listening on uh, Spotify go up tenfold, you'll know, I'll know. why that's now happened. So I love that choice. I love Off the Beaten Path because... Uh, Certainly, it's always fun, and now that we can, you know, go and listen, I'm going to go and listen to, to them a little bit. So, um, this is Aaron Strout, CMO of W2O, the host of the What to Know podcast show. We're here at Bio in Boston, and I've had the pleasure of spending the last 25-ish minutes with uh, Rajiv Venkaya, who is the president of Takeda Phar- uh, Vaccines. Um, thank you so much for taking the time out. It's really been fascinating having this conversation. Thanks a lot, Aaron. I really enjoyed this, and I like your style. I like the uh, the range of, of questions, which span... Uh, um, pretty important stuff to the pretty unimportant stuff. So I, uh, I, I appreciate the opportunity to share my thoughts. Well, thank you. We try to keep it real, and I think it's fun to understand, you know, some of the things that are in your head and your experience, but also to get to know you a little bit. So I appreciate you being willing to do that. Thanks a lot. Want more episodes of What to Know? We post a new episode every Thursday. 
Subscribe on iTunes, the podcast app, the Stitcher app, or Spotify, and view the podcast page at whogroup.com slash what to know.